Welcome back to Autism Confidential, the podcast from the National Council on Severe Autism. I am Jill Escher. I am the president of NCSA, and I am your host today. And as I expressed last week, uh, we have a little three-part mini-series going on right now. Um, uh, Amy Letts and I uh, attended the Together for Choice conference in Las Vegas, Nevada about two weeks ago. And we actually both spoke there about systemic discrimination in policy uh, pertaining to people with profound and severe autism. But at this conference, there were really amazing speakers working on issues pertaining to lifespan care, housing, um, employment, um, uh, day programs, everything pertaining to really adult IDD and autism. It was a great conference, and we're highlighting three of the speakers. We had Molly Knockon on last week. Um, next week, we'll have uh, somebody named Richard Edley from Pennsylvania, who's doing amazing work out there. And today, we have really what I would consider a totally out of the blue, unexpected force of nature, <laughs> Mary Ogle. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yes, you are. Okay. I'm always bad with names, so Mary Ogle. And um, Mary Ogle was a most pleasant surprise at the conference. <laughs> she just came out swinging about her program, about you know the need for more and more and more and more services for this population. And Amy and I were just enamored. So welcome, Mary. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So happy to be talking to somebody from Oklahoma. You are our first Oklahoman on the podcast. Um, so let me just t and, uh, tell you a little bit about her. She's CEO of A New Leaf, which is based in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, which is somewhat to the southeast of Tulsa. And um, as well, from what I can tell, and we'll learn more, A New Leaf has a whole variety of programs from vocational programs to uh, transition programs to behavioral programs and housing programs. So uh, we were just amazed by it. They have a 72 acre campus. Is that right? That's correct. Um, so it, it, it's just an, an amazing example of what we could do um, uh, you know, for our population. So Mary, Let's start off. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come into this whole field? How did you get to New Leaf? Well, I spent the majority of my career with the American Red Cross, uh, but then there were some changes at our national level. And so um, this opportunity at a New Leaf opened up back in 2011. And I, I grew up with an uncle who had MR. And so he lived with us when I was a young girl and he lived with us till he was about 50. And he really wanted to move out on his own. But uh, that just it wasn't possible. There wasn't enough, you know, places for him. So 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 I had the heart for it. And then I have a niece with Alport's disease, which is a rare disease and affects your kidneys, your hearing, and then um, intellect, it creates an intellectual disability. So um, I just have a real, you know, I just, I love our population. I love the people we serve. Uh, so when I um, got the opportunity to take a new leaf over, um, it was a blessing. I just, I didn't realize that there was such a need. So once there was a need, I just, I, I couldn't believe it. So once I became the CEO and saw the need, 
that's all I needed. And we just decided to go from there. So um, I ended up in Oklahoma with the Red Cross, but then I quickly transitioned to a new leaf. And it's been a, a, the greatest gift of my life. Wow. Okay. So now I, I gave the briefest of introductions to what a new leaf is. Can you give a little bigger picture for people? Yes. So a new leaf was started in 1979, like so many organizations, you know, parents wanted to find um, meaningful employment for their daughter. So this was a wealthy couple in, in Oklahoma. And so there wasn't anything at the time. So they traveled all around the country to find programs and they found a program in Maryland that used horse culture. So they came back to Oklahoma, they opened up a greenhouse, and it was all just employment at that time. But they never asked their daughter with the disability what she wanted to do for a living, which is great story for me to tell because she didn't like plants. So she never <laughs> worked at a new leaf, not one day. And so the, I know the moral of the story is, you know, you know, don't do things without them. You know, just like they say, you know, people with disabilities, she really wanted to work, but she wanted to work in childcare. So she ended up getting a job at, um, at a daycare center and worked there her whole life. But she didn't want to work with plants. So they opened up a new leaf in, in, eight, in 1980 and then they did all, you know, they did, we have greenhouses, that's how we were started. And we helped train individuals on, you know, getting plants and selling plants and growing plants. But when I took over in 2011, we were just, we only were serving like 60 people, not maybe not even that. And um, I went to and talked to a man who was the transition coordinator at the local high school. And he was started telling me about the need. And I could not believe if we had such a big need, why weren't we serving three times as many people as we were? Mm -hmm. So once I heard that, I just I opened the floodgates. If you wanted to work at a new leaf, if you wanted services at a new leaf, you come and get services at a new leaf. So right away, we we grew in size right away. And then um, one day I, we kept I kept having this client that had. Uh, a real bad infection on her leg. And she kept coming into work and we would ask her about the infection. And she would say, well, my staff in her residential environment, they were trying to help her, but, but it just never got better. And it really ticked me off, Jill. Mm -hmm. So after like a month of this not being cured or fixed, uh, we just went and called an ambulance and had them take her to the hospital. And, and she actually had an infection in her bone. So the reason I'm telling you this story is we were not satisfied with the level of care our clients were receiving with residential providers. Mm. So in 2013, I went to my board and said, I want us to do residential services I, you know, we need to do it all, basically. You know, we need to be the gamut for people with disabilities. So in 2013, we acquired another company that focused, it was a nonprofit that focused on housing and residential services. So once we took that over, then it, everything just continued to grow. You know, we we tell people with disabilities, you know, go to high school, get degree, you know, go graduate high school. You can determine what you want to do in life. But then they graduate high school and they don't have anything to do. There's not enough services. They are highly unemployed. And then they end up living with their families their whole life. 
And that just Mm -hmm. is not acceptable to me. It's just not acceptable. And my uncle, he lived with us, but he always wanted to move out. But my dad always said no. And so, and I'm not saying everyone can move out without supports, but my uncle could have lived on his own with supports. So once my uncle became like 55, my dad bought him a trailer, like a camping trailer. And he put it like down the road from where my dad lived. Well, my uncle just started to flourish. He, he had his own friends then who took him to church, who took him grocery shopping. So my dad was able to check on him, but he did have a little bit of freedom. So again, for me, it was always about what can we do to help a person regardless of the level of supports they need, but to help them determine as much as their life as they can. And so that's why we ended up continuing to grow. And so today we, we built a 62 units of affordable housing. We opened up a transition academy, which we can talk about. It's a private school, post-secondary education school uh, for people coming out of high school. We still do workforce development. And we're also going to to, um, middle school and high schools every day uh, to teach students with autism. Um, some um, we use the zone method to teach them uh, different zones that they're in and how they can help them regulate zones so that they can really help determine how they're reacting to situations. So that's that's what we do. So today we're seven, 15 million dollars. We serve about 500, probably about 530 clients today. And, and we have about 280 employees. People, this is what leadership and vision looks like. Mm-hmm. How many people do we talk to who who take the bull by its horns like this, who see the need and say, this is our mission, we're filling this need. I mean, I've been in this field a long time, Mary, and you are a rare, fearless bird. <laughs> Most people mm-hmm. are so cowed by... Um, the uh, incredible obstacles ahead of them, right? All of the nonsense. Oh, you can't do this kind of program. You can't do that kind of housing. You know, you can't have all these people together on a campus. That's going to violate this rule or that rule, or you can't afford to do that. And oh, those people with behaviors will be too challenged. Everything and it all comes crashing down on them and they run away. I've got to tell you, I've seen that a hundred times, right? Tell me, why are you different? Why aren't you running away in the face of all of this um, kind of this blizzard of concerns? Well, I don't know, Jill. I mean, I get the same things I got kicked out of eighth grade Catholic school is probably the reason that I'm <laughs> successful today. Um, but I did get kicked out of eighth grade Catholic school for conduct. So I'm obviously it's Trent now with now I'm getting kudos for it. Uh, but you know, the bottom line is that every day parents would come into my office. First, they came into my office and said, my son or daughter's graduating high school, they have autism. What do I do? And no one in Tulsa was really serving anyone with autism. So when I kept hearing that every day, three or four calls a day from family saying my son or daughter has autism, they're graduating, I don't know what to do. So right away there, I had to say yes, because there's this huge, there is a need. So now we're sort of known in Tulsa for serving people with autism. And the most, the more significant the barriers, um, the more people come to us because we, everyone knows we won't say no and we'll work and work and work to help them be successful. And then secondly, every parent that came into my office said, 
you know, I don't know what I'm going to do when, when something happens to me, what's going to happen to my child. Well, I hear that every day. So I don't see how people don't step up to the plate. If, In other words, this is what I do for a living. This is what we do for a living. So how can we not serve them? People used to, when I was with the Red Cross, we'd have a fire and someone say, oh, we didn't respond to that fire last night because it was too far away or in the country. Well, this is what I do for a living. So this is what, as Red Cross, that's what we did for a living. We help people with fire. So of course you have to get out in the middle of the night. So here with a new leaf, we serve people with disabilities. So if we don't do it, who's going to do it? So today we have 340 people on a waiting list to move into our village and people keep telling me, you know, you need to slow down. We can't build this fast. And, but if we don't do it, who is going to do it? So I don't think there's anything special about us. I think there's just a need and someone has got to do it. So who's going to do it? And I personally think we're the best. So we might as well do it. Wow. Wow. Well, we we want to um, take some of the, the, the merry mentality and <laughs> spread it all, all over the country because, um, you know, we, we need more people who are just going to throw themselves into this, even though it, it is difficult. So let's talk a, a little bit. Uh, let's start with the housing piece, because I know people are really interested in that. And then maybe talk about some of the other programs that you have. So you're develop you already have some housing and you're yeah. developing more. Can you tell me more about the village? Yes. So, and one more thing about that, what we were yeah. just talking about, Jill, you know, I just think we have to be brave as leaders because everyone, no, everyone's going to tell you, no, everyone's going to say you can't do it. People just don't, people get so afraid yeah. and I just assume I can do it. I just assume we can do it. So that doesn't mean we do it right or we do it do it right, but we <laughs> always do it. And it doesn't matter if you make mistakes or fail. So I just think more people need to do it. I don't see why anyone would not do it. You just have to have some moxie, I think, to do it. So we built 62 units of affordable housing. So in 2013, when I told you we took over that other company, I didn't know what we were going to do with housing. I didn't know how to do it. So we traveled around the country in 2015 and looked at different models and every model that we, we came, we looked at different models. And then I came back and I talked to the families and I gave them some options. Like here's some of the models we found, but every family wanted a model where it was a community or a village somewhere safer, not just living next to in you know next door to anybody neurotypicals um and and just with no just out in the middle of the community in the middle of Tulsa they didn't want that every family we spoke to wanted safety was their number one concern but wanted that independence so we decided to build the village and it's a neighborhood it's and it's only four people with disabilities. We have four different styles of housing. So we have studio apartments. We have one bedroom apartments in like an apartment building. And then we have traditional homes where people share a kitchen and a living room, but like three or four people live together. So it's, and the, it's all those different styles of housing. Um, and it's great. And it's, we also got tax credit. So I didn't know anything. We raised $20 million through philanthropic dollars to get that, to build it. And it's so easy to raise capital money. So if anyone wants to talk about it, just give me a call. But we raised $20 million to build it. 
but I also needed a few extra million. And I heard about low income housing tax credits. And that's where the government gives states tax credit monies in order to build low income housing. Well, of course, there's developed for profit developers who do this all the time. And so we decided to go after tax credits. The great thing is I don't pay taxes as a nonprofit. So I was able to take the tax credits and sell it to a company for like 88 cents on the dollar. So then I got the cash to build the housing. So we got about 3.1 million in tax credits. What I like about that though, is I was then able to offer low ink, low, uh, uh, low rent. So, and for 40 years. So that's great. Cause I, you know, our clients, even if they, have work and everything, I think they'll always need that low rent, you know? So we rent, for instance, in our village, we rent a one bedroom apartment, 1200 square feet for $560 a month. Um, and that's all utilities included. And a one bedroom apartment in Tulsa probably rents um, on the market for probably, you know, $795, $800 a month. So we're below market. Um, and so that's what we built. And, and it's, and I assume it's, that for a lot of people, social security pays that rent. Right. So everyone is responsible for their own rent, their phone, you know, food, stuff like that. Cause in the waiver, you know, we have the home and community based service waiver in the state and across the country, but those waivers don't pay for rent or food. They really only pay for staffing for a person with an, with a disability. So the client still has to pay their own rent. So I wanted to make sure I kept it low. And before we even opened, we had it filled. We had it leased up. And then now we have that 341 people on a waiting list. So phase two, we're building a 53-unit apartment building. Again, it will, two stories, it'll be made up of one bedroom and studio apartments. And we'll have a few two bedrooms, but you know, our clients, which have, a, they're all over the, the, the spectrum of disability. So we have just intellectual, we have, you know, people with Down syndrome, people with autism, pe people with, um, you know, fragile X, all kinds of different disabilities. And, but they, the one common thing is they don't wanna live with a roommate. Um, it's difficult on the families. It's difficult on them. And so we're trying to build studio and one bedroom apartments. And we're trying new staffing models so that we could share staff between those one bedroom and studios. So you, you'd still get maybe 10 hours to staff a day, but you're sharing that staff with your neighbor next door. So you're not having to live together. So, you know, as I, as I always say, it's hard enough being married and living with people you love, let alone, you know, just strangers, you know, or people who you might not love. So um, I don't just because you have a disability shouldn't mean you should have to live with people. So anyway, so that's what we built. And, and it's in a neighborhood. We, we, did, we don't care that, you know, you're not supposed to build where everyone lives together, who are all people with disabilities living in one location. Um, but, you know, that makes no sense. And it's not what the settings rule says. And that's the federal um, settings rule. The settings rule says that people with disabilities need to have access to the broader community. And that's what that says. And so we just built it 
And people say to me, Mary, you should rent to neurotypical people. You should rent. You should keep some apartments for neurotypicals. But, you know, no, I'm not going to because we don't serve neurotypical people and they can rent an apartment anywhere they want to rent an apartment. My clients can't rent an apartment anywhere they want. So we don't we don't care that it's not integrated because our clients are out in the community every day working going grocery shopping going out to eat going to you know roller skating or whatever they want to do so the housing piece we, we it's just for people with disabilities but they love it they have we have great big front porches on all of our houses and our clients are sitting out there every night i see them every day they're out there and then they'll, someone will have a cooked dinner and then their neighbor will come over and they'll eat dinner together i mean it's such a great community so i don't know i just what you just said is so, it's so rational <laughs> you know but but i have to ask i mean did you come under you know quote unquote higher scrutiny were you attacked for having this community, like, you know, this community-based model um, that does, you know, cluster people with IDD together? Yeah, so it's such a great question. We are not under heightened scrutiny and, we're, and we've never been under heightened scrutiny. Were we attacked? Absolutely. Um, the state of Oklahoma has now come around, but they did not understand what we were doing. I tried for five years to help to help them understand, but they didn't. And then finally, after five years, they sent me a letter saying I couldn't open. Um, but then we got them on the phone with Melissa Harris from CMS. And when she, when they explained our model to her, she very quickly told them that that model is fine because it's all about, does the person have their own lease? Can they come and go as they want? Do they determine their own schedule? Can they eat when they want? Well, of course they can. They are citizens with civil rights, you know, so of course they can. So as soon as she just, she, she told them, yes, then the state, you know, did, then they said we were right and we could go forward. But the other thing is, I kept bringing people along with me. So once in a while, we would get a self-advocate who um did who would come and and you know attack us a little bit but then we would bring them in and explain to them and show them what we were doing and once we did that people just understood and now today when people come and visit our village everyone sees how it is and we get we get nothing but admiration today so um but wow. we're also right we also are right right by the downtown community. So, I mean, people, you know, within two minutes, there's grocery stores, there's, it's not out in the middle of nowhere, you know, I mean, it's a very active and vibrant community. So, um, no, we, and, but it was difficult. It caused me a lot of stress for a lot of years, but I'm glad I didn't listen to anybody. Um, yeah, uh, that's just amazing. What a, what a rare, um, you know, creation you have made. How do you do serving um, adults with severe forms of autism, you know, the ones who have challenging behaviors? Yes. Well, uh, first, we love them. Um, that's what I tell my staff, you know, the first day they get, uh, you know, come to work with us. And I always tell everyone the, the, the most important job you have is to get to know our clients and to love them. 
Um, we do a couple of things that are we think are unique is, first of all, we have behavior support programs in our company, but they're not focused on teaching the individual how to manage their behavior. We, we focus on how to train the staff on how to understand what a person is saying or needing by this extreme uh, behavior. So we focus it, we call we do a lot of training to our staff to teach them how to work with an individual with severe autism. Um, and then we just don't give up. Uh, Jill, we just don't give up. Matter of fact, I was given a tour yesterday and I drove past one of our houses and the front window is boarded up and um, all the lights on the outside are smashed. And we had a young man who's just had a really um, terrible um, outburst a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago. But again, um, it's a it's a team effort. You know, what triggered it? What what did we do wrong, you know, as staff? And then and it really ended up being a medication change uh, that, you know, my my staff didn't agree with, but the family wanted. Uh, but again, we we just don't give up. The other thing we so we spent a lot of time training our staff on how to manage it. Um, but the other thing is we started a pilot program with a company in Tulsa called Family and Children's Services, and they are so good at the mental health component. As you know, no, I think it's right now it's about 60% of our clients have a dual diagnosis in a, mm -hmm. in a mental health condition on top of their like autism or on top of their disability, but nobody serves people with that dual diagnosis in our community. Everyone says, oh, if you have autism or you have a developmental disability and you have a mental illness, you can't be treated. You, you can't benefit from mental health treatment. And, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, because I don't have a degree in that, but I don't really care. What are we going to do to help those people who have that dual diagnosis? So we started a partnership with Family Children's Services, and they're dedicating a whole team of people to work with our clients who have severe autism and have um, dual diagnosis so that they can uh, have their professional um, counselors and mental health professionals work directly with our clients. So we'll keep you posted, but we feel really good about that. But again, I guess I would say we just don't give up and we keep working with them. Because again, who else is going to do it? If we say we can't serve someone, they're just going to go to another agency and then that agency is going to say they can't serve them. I mean, come on. This is what we do. We have to work it out. We have to figure out what the solutions are. Well, I will say my own experience. I have a son who's 24 with mm -hmm. severe nonverbal autism, and he was turned down by every agency right. that was asked to take him um, for any services. Right. <laughs> and right. You name the service, he was turned down because, you know, he engages in property destruction. He elopes. Right. You know, he's very, very strong and can hurt somebody. Right. Um, so you're telling me that you you wouldn't uh, need to turn him down. That no. you might end and up he, on the wait list, <laughs> considering your wait list. But right. But no, I mean, just like that young man who just, you know, you know, my that front window of the house is I mean, he's still living there. And we just have to continue to work on what solutions are going to help him be successful and what tools do the staff need. But again, 
if we don't help them, who will? So we just have to keep working on it. And I think there's the families always say to me, thank you for not giving up. We, we have a girl with severe autism who screams. Uh, she screams whether she's happy. She screams whether she's sad. Mm -hmm. And years, she's been with us now for like 15 years. But years ago, my staff would always say, oh my gosh, we can't serve her. She drives everybody crazy, you know, blah, blah, blah with the screaming, which she does. Um, but again, first of all, now she's a part of our family. So how, how do you just give them, you know, say you can't serve them anymore. And second, Who's going to serve her if we don't? So we started serving her and we've always served her regardless of what anybody says. And now she lives at the village. And so, you know, I mean, again, you just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Wow. Well, let's um, talk a little bit about your other services as well, because you don't do just housing, although that's right. exceptional and amazing. And I can't wait to fly to Tulsa to, to see it. Um, uh, but let's talk about, uh, you know, your other adult services, your vocational services, the behavioral services, the transition academy, give people a little uh, more of an idea about what those are. Okay, so our vocational services are probably just really traditional. We work uh, with about 120 people who we help uh, secure jobs in the community. Some are individual jobs, like who get a job at, a, for instance, a bank, and then we'll have a job coach with them, and then we'll, you know, phase ourselves out. Um, but we, what we do mostly is we'll have uh, two or three clients with a job coach and then they go into different businesses and do jobs in those businesses those on are these people being paid minimum wage for their yes if they're in the community they're being paid minimum wage okay so these um, are these are not people like my son then who well, have very very <laughs> severe cognitive impairment they you know Jill it depends on what the work is Mm -hmm. But we do have, we have, if you are on a small crew with just two or three people and a job coach, you might be able to get certain things done. For instance, we work at uh, some churches where we, um, uh, we sort clothes or sort food. Well, you, you can do that with a couple people and a job coach. And then a new leaf pays that. So sometimes a company will pay us, but sometimes we'll do it at a church or someplace else, and then we just pay the wage of the client. Our job is to pay people minimum wage and to help them learn some skills and get them out in the community. Mm. So we, the enclave, now a lot of disability advocates don't like the enclaves because they want everyone to have integrated employment on their own by themselves, but that's not reality and not reality not at all not remotely right yes. so it's not going to work so we 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 don't we like enclaves enclaves work really well for us and then we also and by enclave you mean um a group of people like with disabilities on people. right okay. two or three people with disabilities and like one job coach and then they go and they work at different companies doing different jobs at the company so it works really well for us. Mm -hmm. We like that model. Where do you get the money to pay them minimum wage? I mean, presumably right. they're not working full time because that would right. cause you to go broke. I mean, right. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, they probably if they get home and community based waiver, they have a certain amount of money set aside for vocational training. So we get a little bit reimbursed by the government. And then we raise a lot of money every year to offset our 
our services, Jill. I mean, there's no other way to do it. The business, there is no business model. You know, right. it doesn't work. It you know, the government, <laughs> no, yeah. I always tell everyone for every hour I work it, with a client, I lose five to six dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, like the car companies say, you know, if, if we get taxed, we just put more, we just charge the customer a higher cost <laughs> for the car. That doesn't work. Doesn't work. No. (laughs) So the more a cost I have, it's just the more money I have to raise, you know, so uh, we work hard to do that. So that's our How much money do you raise a year? Uh, About $4 million with the United Way, probably about $4.8 million a year. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, the public subsidies really don't come close to paying for the actual cost of services. No, they, as I said, I lose five to $6 for every hour I provide a service. I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, it's not a business model you can even do, you know, and we, we do have like a social enterprise. We sell our plants. Um, mm-hmm. But again, we just do, we get about four to 5% of our income from that. But again, that's all about putting people to work, putting people with disabilities to work. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm not, it's not about making a whole bunch of money. It's about putting people to work. So do people come onto is, campus and, and, and buy your wares or. Yes, you we have it? two brick and mortar stores and we have two pop-up locations. So oh, everybody wow. loves that. We have a great community that supports us. I noticed online on your website that you can click on shop and you can see this it just went on and on and on yeah. and on this list of beautiful plants that you guys grow I'm I'm amazed it's a- it's great it's great and then our clients get to do that with the like for instance this season we were like decorating people's porches with like fall mums and all kind of decorations that per- someone can buy from us and then our clients go there and decorate the doors with the moms and make your front porch look real pretty and so again we're always trying ways but uh, the main I think the main source of revenue how I pay my bills is either through reimbursement by the government for with the home and community-based service so through Medicaid and then our fundraising so that's our vocational program but one the most the, the program I'm most excited about is our transition academy. And so, again, we did the opposite of what everyone told us we should do. <laughs> um, and so, I'm, again, I'm in trouble. But um, so every I kept seeing clients who were in our vocational program who really could have been living on their own, who could have been working on their own. But it's hard. It, they just were sort of left out there in the cold. So I decided that we 74% of people with disabilities live with their family their whole life. So we we thought we got to do something about that job that and then also, even after working in this field, like a new leaf and other agencies for past 50 years, there's still a 63% unemployment rate for people with disabilities. So I decided we need to we need to do something different. We need to move the needle. So what we decided to do is when you graduate high school and, you know, your brother goes off to college or your sister gets an apartment on her own, if you're a person with disability, you probably don't. And so we wanted to offer a training for those individuals. So we built a 24-unit dorm. And uh, so everyone who comes out of high school, you sign up and you come, just like your sister goes to college, you come to a New Leafs Transition Academy, you move into a dorm, and it's a two-year residential program. And we only have two outcomes, Jill. One outcome is that when you are done in two years, you'll live on your own with support. So 
everyone needs supports. Everyone with disability needs supports and I need supports, right? I have someone clean my house. I have someone who cleans my horse stall. You know what I mean? I need support, so do people with disabilities. So the two outcomes, you'll live on your own with supports after you graduate and you'll have a full-time job at a competitive rate. So we have 24 students right now. It started in 2022. So are they mostly autism? Uh, I would assume sort of mid-functioning autism. They are. They're mostly people with autism, a little higher level like you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so during the day, they go to school at a local community college and we teach the instruction. And so during the day, they learn how to navigate transportation, how to have budget your money, how to pay your bills, how to make practical stuff, how to make doctor's appointments, how to take your own medication, how to change a light bulb, what to do with the fire alarm. I mean, basic stuff you need to live on your own. And then at night, we apply what they learn into practical applications. So for instance, if you learn how to use an app on your phone on how to like calculate a tip or how to pay, um, like use like Venmo or a cash app, then we then they go to like Pizza Hut and learn how to order, how to pay their bill, how to tip, the whole thing. If they learned how to make a doctor's appointment during the day, then the next day they're calling their doctor, they're making the doctor's appointment, you know, that, that type of thing. So it's real practical application. And that's like year one. And then year two is focused on um, internships, paid internships with uh, with a newly paid internships. Then after that, in the community, everything they need to do to get a job and stand up and have a job at the end of the two years. So I don't know if it's going to work, Jill, but we're working hard. It's all, We just finished our first year, but two of our students are working at a job uh, right now at an internship off campus. And uh, so it's going well. So we, right, it, we, we think it's right now we have an 83% success rate on course completion. So they learning what we're teaching them. But again, it's not integrated, except the housing isn't integrated, the classroom isn't integrated. But then when they go out in the community and apply their skills, it's integrated with everybody else. So the the transition academy, the residential portion is located next to the village. Is it? Yeah, it's right on the village. It's a dormitory, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a great dorm. It's just like your dorms we all went to school with. It had everybody has it's two wings, fourteen units on each side. Everybody has a small, tiny dorm room like you did going to college, mm-hmm. and it has a bed and a desk. And then for every four people, for four students, you share bathroom and shower. And then next to it we built a cafe so just like when you were in college you know you had a card and you go to the cafeteria you swipe your card you get you know buy your breakfast lunch and dinner and right on campus um it's great though because all of our students have not um since they moved away from home for the first time they're not eating in our cafeteria and they're going downtown and getting all kind of crap food from, you know, <laughs> just like you did, I did in college, mm-hmm. you know? So um, they, it's great though. They moved in with their little refrigerators, their microwaves. They did everything that we did, I did when I moved into my college dorm and um, it's been great. It's wow. been so good. And then- Yeah, the kids- I could imagine for that niche of uh, niche of people, I have so many 
friends, um, you know, with that kind of mid-functioning autism who are looking for programs just like this, frankly, and there aren't a lot of them there, you know, and I'm in California there there's maybe one in the Bay area I can think of and, um, not much else in the state. The, the, programs that we have in Oklahoma are at universities and we are friends with those people who run those programs and we we really hope they'll be successful we did we decided to do a different model so three of our universities have cohorts of students with disabilities who come in they live in the dorms with the with neurotypicals Mm. and they take classes with neurotypicals um but um a couple things. They only audit the courses. They don't get any type of degree. Mm-hmm. It's very costly. Mm-hmm. And they start with only like five people at each time, each year. So again, we want to do it differently. We we cover half of the cost and we started with 24 students. So we're we go, you know, we we just try we we're going big and um, and, and we're keeping it very low, as much as low as possible. And we cover it with philanthropy because we didn't want it to be a barrier. We didn't want parents to say, well, I don't want to spend the money on this kind of program because I want to save money in case something happens to me, you know, which ha- which is we hear that a lot from parents. You know, I have a nest egg for when something happens to me. What yeah. we're saying is, OK, but invest a little bit with us so that we can we can help your adult child not have to rely on you when something happens to you, right. you know, well, for our, yeah, we're national council on severe autism, right? So none of our people would right. qualify for that program and none of them will be independent and all of them will require 24 seven care the rest of their right. lives. That just goes without saying, but that said, there's this you know, substantial sector of the autism community that absolutely needs that service. And, right. um, it's really important, you know, but agencies for, for, like ours need to do more for severe autism. We can't just not do it. We have to do it. Like our agency will continue to build programming for people with severe autism, because again, if we're not going to do it, who's going to do it? So agencies mm-hmm. that say, well, we don't work with people with severe autism. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what, what, what? Like you must, you must figure it out and you must have programs because we can't tell parents like you or your listeners, well, sorry, we can't help you. That's but this ridiculous. is the basic reality for our families right, right. now that whenever they go no. to an agency, they're turned away. They're like, oh yeah, we're an autism agency. Yeah. We're an IDD agency. Oh, but not your kid. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. this is this is pervasive. That's the norm, you know. I know, it. and this is why I'm like everybody has to have a dose of Mary and put injected into their brains. We um, don't say no. Actually, the word the more severe that probably we we just take we just take people because if we don't do it, who's going to do it? So I'm not saying well, it's your easy your wait. Let's talk well. about your wait list, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, I assume that mo- the vast majority of your people come from Oklahoma, maybe even the Tulsa area. Um, and you know, that you're not even serving, you know, your own people, but I imagine that there's clamor to get onto your, onto your wait list. Tell me about that. How do people even get admitted to your programs? Well, um, you know, go, you could, they can go on our website and fill out and like, we have an inquiry form and they can find out and get on it and then put their information in, or they can just call us. 
we've hired a case manager a couple of years ago just to work with the waitlist people mm-hmm. um, because it's so significant. Um, it, it's such a problem for us, Jill, though, because right now we have 341 people who want to move into the village. My phase two is only 53 people, 53 new units. Yeah. So again, I'm so, you know, I mean, I don't want to use foul language, but it. I'm just not yeah. making enough of an impact. Um, but, um, we, so that's how people get on. And then we assign a caseworker and she's constantly working that list to find out what the needs are and trying to place emergency situations, stuff Mm. like that. Um, but we are, we're committed. We're, we're, we continue, we're continuing to build. And then I tell every CEO in Tulsa, anyone I talk to, please build housing because it's needed because even if they they can live people even with severe autism could live on their own they just need that 24-hour care and and, but that's what agencies are supposed to do so we need to have that housing so that we can also provide the service to take care of those individuals well which brings me to my final question which is you know what, what we hear all the time is well we can't take your child because we can't find the staff Right. They might say, Um, oh, conceptually, we would like to be able to serve your child, but we can't find the people, right, who will be the DSPs, the direct service providers. Right. What how are you dealing with the the staffing crisis? Right. I mean, there's no question it's tough. It was tough before the pandemic. It's tough after the pandemic. (laughs) Um, But we really try a lot of different unique things. We give a lot of like referral bonuses because our staff that bring a friend with them, uh, they tend to bring good people with them mm-hmm. instead of, because we always say like, you're going to work with this person. So don't be bringing us not good people. You know what I mean? Um, we work really hard with the immigrant population in our community. We have a large Ethiopian uh, community, um, people from Nigeria um, that we love the immigrant population. We, we need to continue to do that. And then I think another thing, Jill, is uh, agencies like ours need to do more remote supports so that we could free up the staff for people who need a human Mm-hmm. So that we don't have that maybe we can use remote supports for people who don't need as much support mm-hmm. and take their human staff and put them with people who have higher needs. Um, remote supports is just really being introduced to Oklahoma in the last year. We haven't had a lot. So we're focusing on that quite a bit now so that we could free up staff to give to the people who need it most. Yeah, um, wow. But the other thing is we have to really run efficiently uh, so that we can pay people more and so that we can attract more people. Um, one of the things we're hopeful for is that the Department of Labor is going to assign a SOC uh, ID for pe- for DSPs, and that'll be um a classification. Um, it's a classification, classification. Department of Labor. Oh, that okay. So right now, DSPs, they, they have a little bit of home health, they have a little bit of CNAs, but they don't have their own classification. Mm-hmm. And they really need mm-hmm. to so that we can recruit for it, we can train for it, we can hire, you know, we can hire for it. And I think that let our national organizations working hard to get that passed. So that's really critical for us. But we have ladders. We we work. We we promote people from within. So someone who's coming in as a direct support professional can see that they can move up the ladder, and that really 
helps our direct support. We get, I think we get more people in that entry level because they see that they can grow within our company. That's a really good point. I mean, because what we hear quite a bit is people see these as dead end jobs, you know, just the same old grind, same old grind with no prospect for growth, whether personal growth or financial growth. And, um, you know, I, I think that's a really interesting point about working within a larger organization is it's not just good for the individuals being served to have that community, that ready access to the community and the safety that you talked about, you know, the, the chance for independence, but it also serves the staff better. You know, they're not off, you know, just doing the same thing every single day, you know, looking at a dead end. So Right. Uh, very good point. I uh, thank you so much, Mary. This has been an incredible uh, discussion. You are absolutely one of my very favorite people in the autism slash IDD world. I'm going to make sure everybody listens to this podcast. Um, it's just you're extraordinary, and um, I can't wait to. I'm sorry I didn't get to meet you at the conference. Um, it would, you know, there was a lot going on, but um, I, I look forward to meeting you in person. Well, thank you for having me. And it's really not me, Jill. I'm it's just God has blessed us and has blessed me. And I'm just so grateful to do the work I do. I'm I'm truly it's it's a it's such a blessing to do what we do. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Confidential. If you'd like to learn more, share an idea for an episode, or become a sponsor please visit us at autismconfidential.org. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual speakers. Content presented is for informational purposes only, and we do not provide any medical or legal advice.